Welcome to Forever a Golden Bear, brought to you by the Big C Society, the Letter Winner Society of Cal Athletics and its alumni network. Each week, we interview varsity letter winners from Cal who are excelling in their post-sports careers. Through their stories, we demystify how to ladder into various professional roles, examine what a day in the life in those roles looks like, and explore whether the athlete's mindset, disciplines, and sensibilities provides an edge in post-sports careers. This episode, and actually the first 13 episodes of Forever a Golden Bear, is brought to you by a regular donor to the Big C Society who shall remain nameless, who made his gift in honor of the thousands of walk-on athletes for the Golden Bears across all of its sports. Anonymous donor, you know who you are. Thank you. Thank you from all of us. Your generosity is the fuel for what we produce here. For anyone else who has an interest in supporting this podcast, please go to bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. Each $500 donation funds one episode of this show. Hello, everyone. This is Robert Paler, former Cal rugby player and now executive director of the Big C Society. Together with us today are Joe Roof, the president of the Big C Society, Matt Ladrech, the liaison director for baseball on the Big C Society Board of Directors, and our special guest today, Stu Gordon, formerly of Cal Baseball and co-founder of the well-known law firm Gordon Rees, the 24th largest in the United States, comprising more than 1,000 lawyers and over 50 different practice and industry groups in 70 national offices located throughout the country. For the benefit of our listeners, Stu, I'm going to start with a little background on you. Stu grew up in Los Angeles, where he was a standout athlete at Fairfax High School. From there, Stu came to Cal as a pitcher for the Bears and earned his varsity letter in 1961 and 62. In 2012, he received the Hall of Fame Service Award for his longtime commitment to Cal Athletics and leadership to raise funds necessary for the reinstatement of the Golden Bear Baseball Program in 2011. He is a prolific restaurateur, co-founder of the Bear Backers, a two-time recipient of the Carl Van Hewitt Cal Baseball Alumnus of the Year Award, and the Cal Baseball Team's Excellence in Leadership Award is named in his honor. And man, Stu, with all those accomplishments, I am out of breath. Now, Matt, you know Stu. Is there anything else you'd like to do to introduce Stu to our audience? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first and foremost, Stu, thanks for for joining Robert, Joe, and I today. Thank um, you. I think we're going really, to have a really awesome discussion. I think a good starting point is, you know, when you think of Cal baseball, it's it's synonymous with um, with Stu Gordon. You know, the generosity that he's shown um, and everything he's done for our players, coaches, and really everyone involved with the athletic department for so long is really remarkable. And I think, you know, digging into um, his life and how he got to this point is going to be really great for the listeners. And, you know, Stu, I'm really excited to uh, everything – Excited for everything you have to share with us today. So no further ado, Robert. Thanks, man. Thank you so much for being here. We are so excited to have you. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you. I'm very excited to be part of this interview and especially with the three of you. Best, best guys representing the Big C Society. Well, don't make me blush too much here at the beginning of the interview. Let's jump right into this interview. And we want to talk about your experience at law school, given that aspiring law students are among our many listeners. Do you remember much about law school? I mean, after a while, it was it was quite a while ago. 
And do you have a sense of what law school is like today in contrast, perhaps from the second hat perspectives of your younger partners? Well, just uh, starting with my first year of law school, I had been in Cal. I had a lot of social uh, engagements and friends and everything. And a lot of my fellow uh, seniors from Cal were fortunate enough to get into the first year of law school. So I went to Bolt. I was really excited to be able to go to Bolt Hall at uh, UC Berkeley. I was elected first year president. I planned all the social events and had a great time. It took me until about mid-year before I realized I wasn't a fourth year senior. I was in my first year of law school. I, and my, uh, when I got my interim grades, they were not great. And I didn't realize how important it was for me to give up the fact that I was no longer in in uh, college and I had to really work hard because there were so many smart people in my law school class and it was a real awakening for me. And from that point on, I just worked my tail off and that's what it takes if you're gonna do well in law school. And it's so important now and it's so important then. You're not gonna do well in law school or anything else after law school, unless you really work hard and give it a maximum effort. Um, How it's different now, I think uh, there are more students with diverse backgrounds. Uh, uh, There are more students who are willing to work harder and be more competitive to do the best they can. Yeah, it used to be the biggest thing to be on, on law review and get to be in the top 10% of your class. I think that's still really important, but I think it's probably even more important now than it was uh, when I was uh, beginning my law school career. Uh, I think that uh, law students now have to be willing to ask more questions, be more understanding of what they're hearing from their professors and from their fellow student in their, in their various study groups and everything. It's, I think it's, it's much more overall engaging now as a law student from what I've talked to uh, and about with uh, some of the people who are uh, just out of law school in my law firm. We hire a lot of new uh, new lawyers who have passed the bar. And I think th- they seem like they're more competitive and they're willing to work hard and they take being a lawyer really seriously. And I think we did when I was uh, in law school and when I graduated from law school, but I think it's a whole new ball game now. It's just uh, everything has become so much more competitive. And obviously, if you want to do well, you have to compete. And just like in athletics, I mean, you can't go out and play a sport and think you're going to slide by. You got to really work hard. And I sure did. And uh, that's I think that's what it really takes. Mm-hmm. You know, 
this is something that you've been speaking about is that work ethic and how that is, you know, a requirement and maybe a secret to being successful in law school. And while that's good advice, of course, we want to go a little bit deeper than that and drill into those hidden repeatable systems that you use to rep- perform well in that competitive environment. You know, for example, can you describe the specific day to day experience as a law school? You know, the types of classes you're taking, the type of work that you're doing. How does that day unfold from dawn dawn to dusk? And what are those secret habits or routines that you practiced? And then maybe if you can contrast that with what law school is like today, as you've heard from your partners. Well, you generally take four different uh uh, subjects in, in law school to start. Uh, and, uh, you, there's torts and there's, uh, contracts and, and, uh, uh, pleadings and procedure and different, uh, courses like that. And, uh, you go to classes for an hour at a time. You have a professor you have to take really good notes uh, because you study from those notes. You can get uh, cliff notes and and uh, notes prepared by professionals, but taking your own notes of what you learn in your classes uh, from your professors, and you have to really pay attention in those hours that you're in class. And then uh, you have to... Uh, study hard. You have obviously textbooks for each of your courses and you have assignments and you have to go through those assignments and make sure you understand everything you need to know because the next time you're in that class, you can't live in fear that the professor is going to call on you to uh, answer a question to show how much you understand of what you've learned, both from what he's taught you and from what you've read in your textbook. Uh, it's really good to have study groups with people you really respect who uh, you can motivate one another, uh, not study groups where you drink a lot and joke around <laughs> a lot. This is serious stuff when you're yeah. in law school. Uh, uh, but you have to understand the subject matter that you're being taught by the professor. So you have to really work on taking good notes, going over those notes and reading the, the chapters that you're supposed to read in the textbook that uh, you've been told to read and then be ready for the next uh, next session with the professor who's likely to call on any one of you. And it's better when you feel really good about what your answer is when the professor calls on you instead of sitting there like I did the first uh, month or so of law school because I didn't prepare myself enough and the professor would call on me. I'd be scared uh, out of my mind. And then I realized it's much better to do the work and not plan as many cocktail parties for my class <laughs> as president and, and really work hard. And I really admire the people who really took it seriously and did well. And when they were called on, uh, they really knew the answers and felt very comfortable doing so. From what I've been told, there's very little of the socialization of 
planning cocktail parties like I did as class president. <laughs> and there's more effort put into really learning the subject matter that you're learning that uh, that semester or year and every opportunity you're given, you have to take every opportunity that you can. So what, what's, what's my take on all this? It's uh, just drilling down on the what you're hearing in class, taking good notes, being able to get something out of those notes and reading the text that you have to read and being able to have study groups with uh, people you really relate to. Study groups are generally like five or seven people and there are quite a few in your class. Make sure uh, there are groups that you really can contribute to and get a lot out of. Uh, and that, that goes on through the rest of your legal career. So getting good studying habits and learning habits from the outset are really helpful. Hey, Stu, I got a quick question. This is just really tactics, but um, sure, Joe. We did you actually read everything that was assigned to you? We, we've heard uh, uh, some other lawyers talk about the impossibility of reading everything that's assigned. And one of the sort of hacks or call it a skill that's developed in law school is sort of separating the wheat from the chaff and like understanding what you need to read in order to get to the understanding that you need to be able to answer the questions, do well on the test, be a good lawyer and so forth. Do you think there's anything to that or? Yeah, no, I, I definitely do. There's a lot to read. And I think after a while you can see what sort of extraneous that you don't really have to focus on. I think what's really good is focusing on what the professor's teaching you, what your notes that you took and be, being able to take good notes are really important. And then realizing what's really important in the, in the books you read. But I think I would agree that you can't read it all and retain it all. But after a while, especially as you really apply yourself, you can tell what's more important to uh, read and try to understand than everything. I mean, it's pretty impossible to <laughs> remember everything and to read everything. There were some people in our law school class who were so phenomenally smart that it seemed like they read and remembered everything. Having a good memory is really helpful. I know my memory was a lot better when I was... Uh, when I was 20 years old than it is right now, but I, I could remember a lot. But if I overdosed on reading too much and trying to remember too much, it would have been really difficult. So I think it's it's a skill that you learn as you go along and you have a better knowledge of what you needed to uh, focus on and what you needed to remember. Hmm. And Stu, so, you know, I looked around, oh, excuse me, Stu, I, I looked yeah. around for what your early career was like and wasn't really able to find much online again because it was kind of a long time ago. But yeah. we'd like to explore that <laughs> early period of your life when you were a young associate to get a sense for the way a young lawyer's career unfolds upon taking a job as an associate at a larger firm like yours. Now, 
your vantage point on the subject is unique and that you've hired and observed the careers of thousands of young lawyers. And we're hoping that your insights will help to clarify expectations for the aspiring attorneys in our office who have or in our audience who have an interest in the road ahead. So, you know, for example, like what are the table stakes requirements for applications to the associate role and what distinguishes associates that you hire apart from the rest and try to relate this into what I was asking earlier with your early period of your life as a young associate. Can I just tell you a story of my first experience working in a small law firm for a dynamite lawyer, highly respected, and he was so good as a lawyer and he was so organized. He never had very many papers on his desk, but uh, the major thing I learned was he got to work every morning at 7.30 and he left at 6 or 6.30. He worked so hard. When I went to work for Bruce Walkup, phenomenal lawyer, I got there every morning at 7 o'clock and I never left until after he left. And I really put in the time and I worked my tail off to try to show him what a good lawyer I was and how hard I was willing, uh, was willing to work. And he was really impressed with that. And I think what's really important when you start off as a lawyer is being willing to put in the time. And it's getting there early and working there late, especially as you're just starting off in your first few years, being a small firm, medium firm or larger firm. So I went from a small firm to medium for, to a medium firm and then a large firm, Brobeck, Flager and Harrison. Uh, and I worked so hard to try to distinguish myself with how hard I worked and how good I was at everything that I was called upon to do. And then I started my own firm with Don Reese, Gordon and Reese, were only two of us. So it's like starting over and just building up uh, the same way with looking for lawyers who were willing to really work hard, who were willing to engage, who were willing to contribute, uh, who were uh, uh, respectful and who could meet almost any task or challenge they were given. So that's a general answer. So let's go to more specifics, whatever you would like. But I think just as I think about it, generally overall, that was really helpful to me. And I think that's really helpful to all new lawyers coming out of law school. You might be a big guy up through even law school, but when you start in a law firm, you start at the bottom. You got to work your way to the top and it takes a whole lot of work. You got to be willing to put in the time and do whatever you can to uh, to do the best job you possibly can to get to the next levels. I've got a quick question on that, uh, Stu. You mentioned there was two parts, at least, that, that you, you when you, particularly when you were talking about, um, sorry, was it Bruce? Bruce Walkup. Yeah, that, that made him such a good lawyer. Uh, so we, as an associate here, we're, we're talking about, you know, one of the things you're saying is signal 
to your partners that you are willing to do whatever it takes essentially by working long hours. But you mentioned this other thing that made Bruce really good, which was organization. So, you know, there was nothing on his desk. There was a few other things you mentioned, but my sense is that he's, he was probably like, is it fair to say that he was organized in his thinking and he was organized in his words and language choice and like everywhere Everything. in his life? Well, is that Everything. what made him good? He was so organized and he, he was so good. I was with him through a whole lot of trials. He never lost a trial. He just was so organized. Uh, and he understood what he needed to do uh, to uh, win in trials, to uh, really uh, uh, understand what the jurors were looking for, what the what the judge wanted. But he 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 was so well prepared for everything he did. I mean, obviously he had to have some papers on his desk with various documents he needed for the, for the cases he was working on, but there was not a whole lot of junk around. Yeah. I'm not as good as he was about that. I have, it's hard for me to get rid of anything, but, uh, but it was good. And uh, he treated me well, uh, and pretty much everybody's treated me well because they know that I have motivation to do well and I have a good attitude and uh, I'm really respectful and nice to everybody. And uh, those are all attributes that I look for in young lawyers. Really like to, when I'm interviewing a new lawyer being out of law school or being at another firm for two or three years and then wanting to come to Gordon Race. Uh, I want him to be able to relate to me and everybody else, to be respectful, to get the idea. He's really motivated. Uh, he's willing to work as hard as it takes to do well, that I could bring him to any meeting with me and uh, people are going to uh, like having him there. Uh, He'll be respectful to me as the top guy for as long as he can and uh, and uh, and work to do anything he can to try to help me uh, be prepared to look good to my clients. And but if called upon, he's got to be able to come up with the responses. And I rely a lot on my associates, either young associates and uh, junior partners and everything else. And almost all of the people who work for me have really ended up doing well uh, just because they listen to me. They watch what I do. They appreciate uh, how well I do with the clients and all the uh, legal matters that I'm involved in. And they try to emulate me and then they do better. And that's great. <laughs> so, and I'm very encouraging to anyone to do the best they can so I think that that really all helps. Stu, for the benefit of our student athletes who are trying to determine what the substance of lawyering within a firm is actually is and whether it sounds appealing, can you describe for us the day-to-day -day work of an associate very specifically? For example, how many hours do associates spend drafting or reading and how much time do associates spend in the courtroom versus the office and how much time in internal and client meetings and so forth? 
Well, I think it all depends on what the practice is, whether it's litigation or uh, whether it's uh, technology or uh, 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 real estate uh, matters and business matters. I think the, the litigation lawyers, I think, I can speak of the best. I mean, they get in in the morning and uh, they've finished whatever assignments they're working on. They work on pleadings. They respond to interrogatories, respond to requests for admissions uh, on behalf of their clients. They help prepare for depositions when the major partner is the one taking the deposition. They uh, help uh, suggest questions for the depositions uh, or if I'm meeting with a, a client to prepare uh, uh, her or him for their depositions, they, they're, they're helpful uh, and they spend time doing that. Uh, and then they start taking the depositions themselves when they show that they can, they can do the depositions. Well, they start with lesser depositions of witnesses and then they get more involved with uh, the parties themselves and depositions. Uh, how much time is on paperwork is probably at the outset a lot. Uh, they're reviewing documents and uh, in order to answer interrogatories, which are written questions sent to you by the other side. And you have to give thorough responses and they have to review the documents in order to help uh, draft the uh, responses for the partner like Stu Gordon to review to make sure he's satisfied with those. Uh, and the same with responses to requests for admissions and requests for production of documents are all uh, just common, ordinary uh, pleadings and documents that you get when you're a litigation lawyer. Uh, you start spending more time in court, you you go to motions and you work on motions with the partner initially and putting together either the best motion to compel whatever it is you're trying to get or a motion for summary judgment to get out of the case when there's no factual dispute in your mind and uh, motion to dismiss, all sorts of motions. You start working on those in your early part of your career and then you start uh, doing those on your own. And uh, that, that takes uh, a few hours a day at the beginning. And the more you get into it and the more uh, you can rely on associates, you spend more on your associates and you do uh, more time on uh, trying to uh, uh, get more clients. A lot of uh, client uh, meetings and client lunches and client dinners. And uh, then uh, you get ready for trial and you spend more time in trial, more time in major depositions that you want to take yourself. Because the deposition is so important of trying to line up the case the way you want it and line up the facts. And if it's a, a adverse uh, witness or adverse client, you try to get as much out of them as possible. That's helpful to your own case. And then with expert witnesses who are retained to 
testify on behalf of your client, like in pharmaceutical products. I had a lot of outstanding experts who I prepared, uh, but I'd have uh, associates in there with me just to learn how to do it and, and help me. And then in those depositions, they were key. I had one, uh, one expert in the uh, Bextra Celebrex litigation that I had for my major client and uh, the other side who was suing my client for hundreds of millions of dollars saying that Bextra and Celebrex caused heart uh, irregularities. And he testified for about seven or eight hours with one of the best plaintiff's lawyers. And she is just dynamite. And at the end of his deposition, they decided to drop the entire litigation. And I have cursed him day in and day out since then because he's become a good friend of mine it cost me millions of dollars of legal fees <laughs> by doing such a great job in testifying on behalf of my client but I spent hours with him preparing him for his deposition and the uh, associate who was with me at that time actually he was a junior partner uh, learned a lot about how important the discovery is to uh enhance your case and advance your position. So, I mean, we spent so many hours doing all that. And throughout my career, I would spend as much time as it ever took to be totally well prepared for what I was about to do. And I think my associates and my junior partners learned from that because they've all, all done an outstanding job in, uh, doing the same as they've gotten to be partners and handling their own caseloads. You know, Stu, it sounds like, um, well, a couple, just in summary, it sounds like as an associate, there's a lot of, particularly if, it, a lot of your answer, it seems like it was uh, drawing on your experience as a litigator and litigation as a practice. Correct. A lot, a lot of reading and research, Correct. a lot a lot of, you know, we'll call it highly um, technical writing, you know, in responding to briefs and, and so forth, uh, uh, writing briefs, you know, and, and then uh, the last part, <clears throat> it seems like there's, a, or at least a couple of the last parts in preparing a senior partner like you uh, for a deposition, for a trial or whatever, they're also going to be listening to you trying to understand how these cases are likely to unfold and all the different moves that they would need to make, you know, in order to sort of, again, properly set up your position, advance your case, advance your, your clients. And, and that's, that sounds like judgment to me. Cause if like, if you haven't had a lot of experience with say a particular judge or with a jury or, or, you know, what the other side might be thinking, that's where, uh, does that, is that a correct summary? Well, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You have to have a strategy from, you know, when you start on a case until you get to trial about how you want it to unfold. Uh, yeah, judgment uh, and a feel for what you're doing really helps. And, and you develop that over a period of time. 
the more you do it, the more your judgment improves and the more it improves correctly. So you're yeah. not making judgments with they're the wrong judgments. Uh, and I mean, even in in depositions and and in trials, you have to know what the right questions are. And you never want to ask the wrong question. And you never want to go into an area where you're not sure if you're right or wrong and you can uh, get hit pretty hard by going in a wrong direction. Yeah. So, yeah, judgment judgment is, is really hard. But if you really pay attention to what you're doing and you understand the benefits of uh, not only being well-prepared, but being able to decide at any given moment what's the right question to ask and what's the wrong question not to ask. And when you're giving an opening statement to the jury, you don't want to oversell your case. You don't want to oversell anything unless you have the facts to support it. And when you're in a trial, when you're uh, examining or cross-examining witnesses, you don't want to go too far out to run the risk of getting the wrong response, like throwing a mediocre fastball over the plate to a great <laughs> hitter. It's likely to not be in the ballpark any, yeah, yeah. any longer. Matt can relate to that. We never did that. <laughs> we always <laughs> kept the ball where we wanted it. And uh, it's the same, same thing. You just have to uh, have good judgment and, uh, and really know what you're doing and, and not take risk that might, uh, might double back on you in a way that you're going to regret. Right. So the, we never did that. <laughs> the, uh, you know, uh, another segment of our audience, Stu, like our current associates or they're about to be associates, like let's just say they've just passed the bar and they're um, just for the benefit of that group. We're trying to get a sense for the twists and turns and the career progression from being an associate to being a partner in a firm like yours. You know, we've we've just talked a little bit about how that unfolds, you know, in terms of like training, junior training. But can you give us a sense, a little bit more sense of how that unfolds, how long it takes for someone to build judgment, uh, build the right level of skills and so forth? And can you share any like insights on the, say, the standards of performance, you know, that a young lawyer would need to deliver to the firm in order sure. to be considered to be a part of yeah. the partnership? Secret tests. You can illuminate yeah. secret tests. That'll be extra credit. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> uh, so generally now... It takes about seven years to become a partner or a junior partner, either one, depending on what the firm structure is. Uh, but so you're a rookie associate and then it's up to you to show the partner that you're working with or the partners you're working with, because a lot of associates work with several partners. You have to impress them with uh, how quickly you can pick it all up, uh, the various issues and uh, what's important in these cases. And, uh, and you have to uh, really work hard. Uh, and 
you have to uh, volunteer to be on committees in your law firm and do extra work, uh, not just on the legal cases that you have, but there are all sorts of other things that happen in, in law firms where the more that you volunteer uh, and the more you get known, the more you uh, spend time uh, after four or five years trying to get some of your friends maybe to ask you or your firm to do some legal work for them, just showing that you're willing to do whatever it takes to uh, advance your your career and to help your law firm is really helpful. I think pretty much what you do for your first three years is pretty standard. I mean, you're you're doing what's called grunt work. I hate that term, but I mean, you're just doing a lot of paperwork. You're you're uh, you're reading, you're writing, you're uh, you're helping the partner, the junior partner, whatever you're trying to impress him or her with what good work you do. So they give you more work and the more work you get, if you can do more work and keep doing more work, you'll impress uh, whatever partners you're working for and uh, leaving a good impression on everyone you're working with is, is really good. And if you do have some client uh, exposure with your partners and you're called on to to uh, do anything with those clients, it's really good to impress those two. I've given my associates really good opportunity to participate in the client discussions. And it's great when my clients are impressed with the associates who are working with me. And that gets to be more and more as we go along. After after four or five years or so, you're much more in line to uh, to be looking at a partnership and generally a junior partnership, if that's the term that applies in the structure of your law firm. But uh, working hard, uh, being willing to do whatever it takes to uh, do the best job that you can uh, and uh really getting along with everyone and having people enjoy working with you, even being respectful to the opposing counsel is really important. So when you're taking depositions, uh, you don't want to get into hassles with the opposing counsel. If you go to court, you never want to get in a hassle with the judge. Uh, being <laughs> respectful to everyone is really important. I yeah. learned that from the outset. And I, that really helped me. I mean, people always like dealing with me on my side, on the other side, or co-counsel representing another similar client in a case. And the judges all thought I was respectful and prepared. And, uh, but during those, starting the end of your fourth year, fifth year, if you're so outstanding, you do so well, you can become a partner earlier than seven years. Uh, but it takes a lot of work and you just have to be willing to do it. But you never give up. Uh, and if you're a junior partner after seven years, and sometimes it can take longer if you're slower to get to the level that you have to be to for the partners to think that you deserve to be a junior partner. 
uh, or if you're not a junior partner, just a partner without as much uh, responsibility uh, or without as much financial interest in the firm. Because that's what your big goal is, to become a proprietary partner in a firm where you have a proprietary interest. Uh, it's easier when you have a two-man firm because if there are two guys, it's easier to split up the, the <laughs> ownership of the firm. Uh, but uh, when in a big firm like ours, when you get to be a proprietary partner, like after 10 or 12 or so years, uh, then you get a small percentage and then you keep building up on that. But it's all... It's all just uh, a ladder of one step after another of getting where you want to go and being able to work as much as you have to to get there. But really always volunteering any way you can. If anybody says, I need a lawyer uh, in our group to to go to this motion or do this motion or go to this hearing or whatever, it's great to say, I'd be happy to do it. And then be prepared to do it. And the more motions you win and the better you do in depositions and uh, everything else associated with uh, litigation practice, the sooner you're going to be a partner. Can, can I want to see I wanna... seven years is a. Uh, Seven years is a good number. Okay. So and I, yeah. we recognize, obviously, there's no certainties in life. There's some people that never right. make partner. Uh, but it sounds like that, like some of the keys include the, you know, this, this extreme uh, like amount of work. Part of the reason for that is to build all this judgment so that you can get to the nub of things quickly so that you can impress clients and your partners in these engagements. And also it sounds like building the skill of being courteous. I think it's, it's, it's sort of important to note that in, uh, you're often dealing with contentious issues as lawyers. Yeah, and, and yeah, so, very contentious yeah. issues and very contentious lawyers. <clears throat> yeah, so being, being polite under those circumstances, is, uh, it seems like that could be a learned skill as well. And then the last point is once you've actually, uh, if, you've, if, you've, if you're lucky enough to, to win your way into the partnership, just owning, being a part of the partnership, it's essentially you get some portion of the pro rata distribution of profits at the end of the year. Is that correct. right? Is that why everybody's correct. trying to do this? Yes, yeah. correct. So, so that's, so that's sort that's of like really the important. annuity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And what's really important at that stage is developing clients. And that's a skill too, Joe, because the more clients you're able to attract to your law firm uh, because they have faith in you. They trust you. They know you're a lawyer. They know you work with a good law firm. The, the more clients you get, the easier it is to get more. And that's just developing self-confidence in yourself to project yourself as someone they'd like to have represent you and not just be your friend or whatever, but someone they can trust uh, as, as their lawyer. Yeah. Really of course, that makes you a producer for the firm, which then makes you valuable. And, you know, of course, the partners would then be more interested if you're going to be adding to the pie. Yeah. You know, that's right. Giving that's you uh, a bigger piece of the pie. That's more valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah. 
So, Stu, you know, after your explanation of climbing this ladder and Joe's, you know, summary of picking up information quick, volunteering and putting in extra work and being a respectful person, once you switch to the role as partner, how does the what's the difference in the day to day duties from that of an associate? You know, you mentioned you mentioned developing clients. What are those other things? How does the day to day change? Well, I think as you get into the the level of being a partner, you can uh, assign more work to associates and you know what work uh, associates can do just as well as you can. And then after a while, if you're spending a lot of time promoting business, preparing for major depositions, preparing for trials, you don't have time to do all the various tasks you did at the outset for the first uh one day to four years or five years uh, of working as an associate. So you're able to assign the work to the associates who you have confidence in that will be able to do the best job they can. And so a lot of that is sort of management. You have to manage the people that you work with and be able to spend uh, quality time uh, preparing for trials and major depositions and also allowing you to spend more time taking clients, potential clients to lunch and everything. Because if you have clients that are good clients uh, and a lot of them are uh, have several different law firms doing their work, if you're not hustling them and looking after them and taking the lunch, your, your uh, competitors will be so, and it's not that you're proving yourself uh, to them as what a great lawyer are. you are taking them to lunch, but often at lunch, you do talk about the cases that are on their minds and uh, you get an opportunity in a more social setting to show how smart you are and how much <laughs> you care about doing a good job and how much you care about your clients. So, uh, so you spend more time doing that. And then in managing the law firm, uh, either being involved with managing the secretaries or the paralegals. Paralegals are unbelievably important. And as you get to the five, six, seven uh, year point on, you have to have a paralegal who's not doing legal work per se, but you ask them to do stuff for you that you need them to find like cases that you need to find or, or documents you need to find for production of documents or whatever, they're really important. Uh, I've spent about in the last two days, I've spent at least six to eight hours with my paralegal trying to organize all the documents that we have to produce today before the end of the day. Uh, and so, uh, I was up till 10.30 working with him last night uh, on our uh, iPhones. And this morning we were up at 7 working on this until about 9 o'clock. I said I have to focus on uh, this very important uh, call I'm on right now. <laughs> but, you know, you just you have so many more things to do that you're responsible for as you get on in your legal career. And. You just have to be able to sort of uh, 
use your time wisely and uh, and not be afraid to work until 1030 here. I've been a partner in my law firm for probably 45 years. I'm still working late and getting up early when when it's necessary. And if be it with my uh, with my paralegal, who's phenomenal, or I also work with a junior partner who yesterday we were working on this motion for summary judgment we have coming up on Tuesday. And uh, so he's doing most of the work, but he runs everything by me. And I, I'm at the stage of my life where I could advise him of ways we can improve our motion to be most successful. And uh, th- there's a lot to do. And if you want to really do it well, you just have to spend the time. Uh, that's my biggest thing I have ever said from the start of being a lawyer with Bruce Walkup to today. It's just got to spend the time and work as hard as you can and be flexible and, and get along with everybody, but do everything the absolute best you can. You know, like bridging on that topic that you just spoke on there, that time commitment, putting in that work ethic is something you just said, you know, a moment ago and something that's really been repeating throughout this interview. We've heard that working at a big law firm is very demanding and there are those long hours of consequential detail oriented work. And we've heard anecdotes like investment bankers, you know, they go to bed at 2 a.m. and lawyers, they don't go to bed at all. Now, can you describe for us like the systems that you've used to work those long hours and still maintain wellness and balance and manage that stress, given that there's great time demands in this line of work? Yeah, whatever you said is exactly right. I mean, nothing is more important to me during the day than spending at least an hour working out, either either running, which I I ran 54 marathons and over 60,000 recorded miles, and I somehow found the time in this busy uh, legal career that I had. I still have to work out at least an hour a day, so... Uh, you have to give up a little on sleep, I think, unless it just works with your schedule. You get more sleep than than not. But uh, uh, you just have to be able to have your family life that you deal with because it's really important. Uh, anything else that you're doing uh, with friends, I belong to the Bohemian Club, Pacific Union Club, the Wine and Food Society of San Francisco. I have to spend my time doing that. So allocating your time is so important and you can't just focus it all on one thing, but when you're doing whatever it is, you have to really do it the best you can. And I, when I'm working, I really focus on my work. And when I go out for a run or do my Peloton, whatever, I'm, trying to do the best I can while I'm doing that. But when I'm running or when I'm walking or with I'm doing my Peloton, I'm always thinking of things that I need to do when I get back that will help me as far as what I'm working on on my legal cases. I get some of my best thoughts and always have when I'm out in the fresh air doing exercise. Uh, so that's really been helpful. And, uh, my wife is uh, very supportive. They all think I'm crazy because when I go on vacation, I spend at least uh, three quarters of every day 
uh, working, but I try to do it in the best way possible and get the most out of those other hours when I'm with my wife and running or working out or whatever. Life for me, and I'm pleased with what I've accomplished in my life, has been allocation of priorities and what I need to do gets done and what I want to do mostly gets done. But if I have a case like the one I'm working on now for the last few weeks that I have to have this brief finalized and submitted this afternoon, I I give up working out, which is painful because I have my priorities, what I have to do. But given given my uh, given my what's satisfying to me is to try to do the work I can, try to get some exercise, spend some time with my wife, uh, talk to my sons whenever I can. Uh, on the phone and do my social obligations. And it's, it's hard. And I'll tell you, it takes about, uh, takes about 17 hours a day. Yeah. Get all that done. Gosh. But I never complain. Hey, so I want to return to the subject if I can't, you know, one of the, you, I mean, you sit in a unique position, you know, we're not going to talk to, the founder of another, whatever, you know, 2000, 4,000 person law firm, probably. Most of them are, most of them have been gone for a long time. You know, so you've seen a lot and you've hired a lot of people and I'm sure you've seen some people work out and others not. And we're just, one of the things we're sort of wondering about, uh, just given that uh, lawyering is a, it's a useful skill in lots of different arenas. You know, if, if someone's graduating law school, um, you know, they're just maybe thinking to themselves, oh, I should, I should be a lawyer. I'm going to, you know, maybe go work for a firm, but is there anybody from your perspective that maybe shouldn't, you know, be yeah, a lawyer, yeah. you know, like, you know, I, I have, uh, I talked to this, uh, uh, lawyer who's been with us for about seven or eight years, who's a junior partner. And I, and I asked her that question. I mean, I, I, I have my own thoughts. If you're not willing to do the work and everything I've said, you're not going to do well as a lawyer. If you're not willing to get along with the people you work with or the people who you're working against, you're not going to be a good lawyer. If you're not, uh, if you're not, uh, willing to, uh, understand the process that People disagree and you have to try to realize that their disagreements with people doesn't mean they're wrong and you're right. And if you have a difficulty trying to understand both sides of the issue, you're not going to be a good lawyer. Uh, let me see. She said, those who have a hard time trusting their own judgment or are uncomfortable giving advice may not be very successful lawyers. I thought that was pretty good. <laughs> uh, uh, she also said, 
Good attorneys also listen, ask questions, push for the truth, and are constantly reassessing the information presented, which takes time. Good writing takes time. Those who have a hard time understanding that there's a process to coming to a reasoned conclusion will not do well. Uh, being a lawyer has a high threshold for, uh, for stress if you can't deal with the stress you probably wouldn't be a good litigation lawyer because it's a very stressful. If you all had been with me for the last like five days going through what I've done with my client and the opposition and everything else, trying to submit this brief that I have to this afternoon, you would realize how stressful being a lawyer is. If you can't deal with the stress, you got to find some other occupation. And before, before I forget, to on this note, uh, my wife, Julie, passes along a warm hello. And it, I, I'm reminded of that because uh, her, her uncle, Greg LeMain, was a senior partner at Baker McKinsey. Yeah. Uh, and he, he was talking to the subject of stress with me one day, which he had a very interesting viewpoint, which was, he goes, you know, Joe, uh, yeah, it's life is stressful. It's, you know, doing what I do is stressful, but life wouldn't be very interesting if things weren't stressful. So what, what, what strikes that's me about the right that is, attitude. if you feel that way, that's really good. If yeah. you feel that life is being a lawyer is stressful and I can't handle this stress all the time, then that's not the right occupation for you. Yeah, but, I think that's kind of what I was just going to get to is like yeah. you, know, you, can, you can view that that sort of, you know, the the, the conditions of lawyering you know, as positive or negative. And in his case, he, you know, he's learned to love it, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah. That so. really uh, makes a difference. And Baker McKenzie is an outstanding law firm. Um, one other subject I want to return to just for a minute. We, we talked for uh, a second about like building into the partnership and, you know, the gold ring at the end of the partnership is sharing in the partnership's profits. You know, we live here in the, we live here in the Bay area, you know, global center for, disruption and technology. I'm just wondering what you think lawyering will look like in the next 20 years. Like, will it still be, you know, the specialized professional service that generates high billing rates and lucrative careers or, you know, is like artificial intelligence or, you know, outsourcing to India going to disrupt this model? What, what do you see? Yeah. You know, I, I think it'll stay pretty much the same because it's self-perpetuating and I think the lawyers who are doing what they're doing now, the way they're doing it, will continue that going on in the future. I think uh, technology is making a huge difference. I mean, all the things we have now I, that I ever knew existed when I started practice of law, like my iPhone and my <laughs> iPad and my scanner on the other side of the room and everything. It makes everything so much easier. And the communication is so much easier and better. I mean, I love being able to look at you and look at Robert and look at Matt and being able to look you in the eye when I'm talking to you on these Zoom calls or Vimeo or whatever we might be using. I think that's going to mean that they're going to be less uh, in-person meetings and we'll do it more on iPads and, uh, and iPhones and, uh, Zoom calls and anything else that, 
uh, continues in technology so that we're going to be more lawyers are going to be working from home a good deal of the time uh, and not going to the office, which I hate because I think the sociability of being together with the other lawyers in your office are really important. Uh, that really helped me, really helped my partners that I work with all the time. I think there's going to be less and less of that. Uh, but I think we'll still make an effort to work together and have some sociability, have some days in the office. We're thinking now uh, about asking the people in our firm in San Francisco and Oakland, at least, to be present uh, three days a week uh, so we can all be together. Uh, the idea of everybody working from home and working on Zoom and everything else scares me. And I think there'll be more of that. But I still think the basic structure of the law firm management and profitability uh, will still be pretty much the same. So I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying this or not, but uh, during last year when we were shut down, our firm was more than 10% uh, above budget on net income at the end of the year, even though we're all working from home. And I think that's because we were probably more efficient. We didn't spend as much time uh, commuting and we didn't spend as much time standing around the office chit-chatting with each other, which I think is really important. But but we were we had a great year. So all the people who had the percentages, pretty happy with what their percentages uh, yeah. <laughs> produced by the end of the year. You know, it, it strikes me that the you know the the ability of uh, all these companies, yours included, to execute you know even this virtual environment over the last year may have may well have been set up by all the time that you spent in person before that. Uh, greasing the skids and it also supports the logic of, you know, spending at least, you know, th whatever, three days a week or some amount of time together yeah. going forward. Because if you like, imagine if you were a new person coming in and you never met you in person and then you're <laughs> interacting with you over Zoom, it might produce a different result than if than if you had been together. So, yeah, I'm sure that's true. I'm sure uh, meeting me just because I'm the senior, senior uh, partner, probably for someone younger just coming into the firm would be sort of scary. I don't yeah. think I'm that scary, but uh, it'd be better meeting me in the office than having a, a Zoom call would be much more sterile. Yeah. I love the sociability of everything we do. I think that's really important. Stu, you've been presenting us a masterclass on being a lawyer, both in your experiences and insights. And on that note, now I'd like to shift to the intangible benefits, the thousands of hours that you invested on the field as a baseball player, the training, the treating, competing. Our audience is very interested whether the sensibilities you developed as an athlete are transferable to post-sports careers. So for that, I'm going to turn the mic over to Matt. <laughs> Yeah, exactly, Robert. And kind of my question to you, Stu, is, you know, we hear a lot about those advantages that Robert's talking about right now that are, you know, somewhat embedded um, for these athletes in their in their professional lives. And, you know, along with the other disciplines that, you know, give them this edge. So with that being said, 
Are there any parallels you've drawn from your former baseball career in which you see that baseball and sport and your training that gave you that edge? And, you know, if so, is there anything that sticks out to you specifically where you kind of sat there and said, yeah, you know what? I, I gained that through baseball and through all my time in sport. Yeah. Okay. I'm uh, ready to deal with that because I think that was very transferable. First of all, just uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be a great baseball pitcher like you, uh, which it was Sandy Koufax at that time. But uh, so I would pitch to my father almost every day after he got work off of work and we'd have a, uh, a catcher's box and I had my pitcher's mound. It was just a stripe in the driveway and I'd throw to him every day I could. And in the backyard, we had a garage uh, and then 60 feet, six inches from that garage, uh, it was the side of it was made out of uh, plaster and I would have a diamond on that uh, on that garage, which would be the plate. And I would throw all the time trying to get the ball, and that was a, a tennis ball at that time, into that diamond. But when I pitched to my father, it was always a baseball. And I've always had that work ethic. So when I got to Cal, uh, and when I was my first year, you could only be play freshman ball. Uh, so, uh, one of the things that we had to do would be to run to keep our legs in shape. And if we had to run, uh, 10 laps or 20 laps, I would always double that because I love to run and be in really good shape. I think you have to be in good shape to be a, a baseball player and be successful. And then I practiced as, as hard as I could. I try to always get along well with my teammates. I try to uh, encourage all my teammates to do the best they could. And um, we won the uh, College World Championship in my first year, but I couldn't play on that team. Uh, I was also on the basketball team and also practiced a lot as a baseball, as a basketball player. And that was, I sort of had a joint scholarship, but mostly toward baseball. And I really practiced hard as a, as a basketball player and, uh, and I could only play basketball in my first year. And we had Daryl Emhoff, who was an all American center. And so the freshman team that I was on, I was the tallest guy, taller then than I am now. I was pretty close to 6'5", and Daryl Emhoff was 7'1". So I had to guard him when the freshman played the varsity. And uh, I, I learned from that experience that I should stick to baseball. Uh, yeah. I was, wasn't tall enough. But that team won the, the NC2A in basketball under Pete Newell. He was a phenomenal coach. So uh, I learned uh, from baseball, get along with your baseball coach, uh, George Wolfman, and uh, and do whatever he says and uh, show him respect and be respectful of my teammates like Bob Milano, who I 
I know you now, who is outstanding. Uh, and so, but I was willing to really work hard. And, and there were some stressful games that we pitched in that you can't fold, even though you have runners on second and third and nobody out, you got to still pitch smartly and do whatever you can to don't let that guy on third base or second base score and keep your, keep your pitches under control and don't, don't sort of lose your uh, control over everything you're doing because you're too stressed out. And I think you learn a lot under those stressful situations as a pitcher and as batters do when they're up to bat and they're men on base and they need runs to get uh, fold under the stress of, wow, what am I going to do now? They have to just pay attention and get their hit. So uh, I really, really worked hard at all times and was, I think, a really good teammate. I think Bob Milano would agree with me, even though I called him off a few times on pitches. He thought we were better <laughs> than I thought they were. But, uh, but we, we live with that. And uh, right up into the, the very end of my uh, college career as a pitcher and baseball player on really good teams, I, I just... Uh, I dealt with the stress of difficult times and I uh, was always respectful to the opposing players and the opposing coaches. And, uh, and I knew that if I was willing to compete in law school to do the best I could, as I did in baseball and basketball before I gave that up, that would really help me. And the work spending the time, getting along with everyone, having respect for everyone, uh, just are just tools you take with you from sports to law school, to your law firm, to success. And I think that's, that's been my roadmap. It's really worked out well for me. But if I didn't engage in sports, I don't think I would have ever gotten to where I am uh, today or well before today. Yeah, it's a good point. You know, all athletes get used to the feeling of stress. They get free in a number of different ways. And uh, we had a, another guest, uh, Banked Baron, who's an incredible swimmer and executive. Uh, he sort of, in his own way, talked about that stress turning into confidence. And that yeah, confidence true. being... Confidence is- being, being a remarkable, a remarkable professional edge. Yeah, um, I, I should have mentioned that, Joe. I'm happy you mentioned that. Having confidence in yourself that is well-deserved is so important. And I did as a pitcher, uh, and I have done that as a, as a lawyer. I mean, I've had total confidence in everything I've been doing since I became a partner uh, at Gordon and Reese, which 1974, everything I've done then, I'm still ready to learn, willing to learn, learn things all the time. But I have a lot of confidence in myself. Um, so I've got a we've I've got a final question for you here. 
uh, as you as you know, uh, first of all, I wanted to say before I get to that, I love the shout outs for Bob Milano. Uh, for those of you who yeah. are listening, uh, he was the executive director of the Big C Society for like more than a decade. And this organization owes him a huge debt of gratitude. So before I, I just wanted to say that uh, if you're listening, Bob, you're the man. Uh, also. So now, like, you know, as you know, Stu, like 98% of our student athletes go pro in something other than their sport. And then e- even the 2% who do go pro in their sport, ultimately they go pro in something other than their sport. And we've, we've heard from this group really poignantly that uh, as much as anything, that's a tr- sort of a transition in self-identity. Uh, and it can be really hard. Uh, the stu- our student athletes sort of describe feeling untethered deeply uncertain, you know, about who they'll become and how life will unfold, you know, what the first steps to take are and so forth. And we're just wondering if the, and I'm not going to, um, uh, I'm just going to say the mature you, if the mature you could give some general advice or career guidance to the 22 year old you, if you can think back that far, I know it's been a long time. Uh, what would you recommend? And, you know, what would you say to your earlier, to your younger self? I would say, you know, there comes a time when you can't play your sport anymore and you can't go pro because you're not going to do well. And you have to uh, consider other alternatives. And uh, I was around lawyers a lot because of my father uh, as I was growing up. And I sort of liked the idea of uh, going to law school and becoming a lawyer. But I think you have to have the maturity to uh, to be able to transition away from being a professional athlete unless you're really an outstanding athlete. We've certainly had a lot coming out of Cal, baseball, football, basketball, swimming, everything. Uh, but if you're not at that level, you have to be able to admit to yourself it's time to go on and transition into something you'd be better suited for. But that doesn't mean you can't still engage in athletics uh, at sort of a fun level as opposed to a competitive level. Like I still, after I after I left uh, baseball and went to law school, I still played softball and fast pitch softball leagues for quite a while. And, uh, and I really enjoyed that. And so there's other, and so, you know, if you're swimming, you could still swim competitively at the Olympic club or other clubs that have uh, swimming meets, but you just have to be able to, uh, give up the fact that you're not going to be a professional athlete, uh, cause you probably would just be wasting time. Although it's hard to admit, but, Life has a lot of opportunities separate and apart from being a professional athlete. And uh, you got to take advantage of every opportunity out there. So that's, my thought is. For sure. Well, yeah, that's certainly true. We One of the goals of our organization at the Big C Society is to allow, uh, by showing examples of lives like yours that, you know, you don't ever really have to give up your identity as an athlete. You can just have more than one dimension of you. Um, so we really wanted to thank you so much for sharing, uh, your life, your insights, uh, joining us today, you know, along with obviously all the other things that you do for, for Cal, uh, 
Um, we wanted to say thank you on behalf of the university for the recent gift you made um, to, to both the Cal baseball and the university again. I know that's uh, just the most recent. Uh, and yeah, wow. Just thank you so much for your time. I just want to add one final thought. If you have a wonderful experience in many different ways as an athlete at the University of California, Berkeley, or anywhere else, you have to give back. And that's my biggest message to everyone is you have to give back uh, in the form of generosity. And as you know, I've given a substantial amount of money to uh, Cal baseball, but also to Cal basketball. Uh, as you walk in hospital, you see my name on the plaque and I've given a lot of money to the football program and to the athletic facility there. Uh, and this, cause I've been successful. I've made a lot of money, but I've made a point of giving back. And as Matt knows, I'm out there raising money for Cal baseball all the time. And I'm always encouraging people to give back. And I think it should just be in the genes of all of us who have played sports at Cal to be willing to give back as much as we can to help support the sports that we were fortunate enough to be a part of when we played or participated at Cal. Yeah, you know, our, Bill Oswald's uh, on our board and his wife, Trudy, always says, you'll never regret uh, you know, the donate any donations or generosity, whether of time or, or, or capital that you make, it always seems to, you know, f- feel so good and come back to you in ways that you can never imagine. So it's true. Uh, hey, last thing too, Stu, I'm wondering if, if anybody's listening who uh, anybody wants to get in touch with you, send you an email, ask you a follow up question. Is that something you're open to? And if so, uh, how would they sure. get in touch with you? Well, the best way would be S Gordon at Gordon Reese, R-E-E-S dot com. Got it. And if they have questions, that'd be fine. If they really want to talk to me, just uh, mention that in the email. Because I'm one busy guy. <laughs> but I, <laughs> but course, I yeah. never, but I never want to turn down anyone who has legitimate questions or uh, ideas or recommendations or anything else. So, uh, please do it. That's why they invented the iPhone is to get uh, emails. <laughs> well, Stu, I want to thank you so much for your time today. And I'm so happy you brought up that last topic and giving and generosity out of the plethora of remarkable qualities and things you've done over your life that we've been able to examine in this podcast. Your generosity um, has simply blown me away. You've been so generous to the university. You've been generous to me myself, and you're continuing to show your generosity through this podcast, sharing your experiences and lessons that will be shared with student athletes from Cal and our alumni for the rest of their lives. So certainly from the bottom of my heart, thank you. This concludes the podcast. Go Bears. Thanks, Go Bears. Go Bears. Thank you. What an incredible interview from Stu Gordon. Some of the key takeaways that stood out to me were how much he stresses the importance of a solid work ethic and dedication. Being respectful and courteous, even in a competitive line of work, 
and generosity. After all the hard work and success that Stu has experienced in his lifetime, the impact he has made and continues to make with Cal Athletics is something that will serve student athletes forever in hopes that one day we can give and serve the next generation just like Stu. You can find the podcast, show notes, and additional content and resources on the Spotlighting Episodes page at bigcsociety.org forward slash spotlighting. If you'd like to support the work we do here on the podcast, please subscribe, comment, and share the show or your favorite episodes with friends or on social media. And you can also support us by making a gift at bigcsociety.org forward slash donate. The Big C Society is a very efficient, mostly volunteer organization and a registered 501c3 charity. Each donation of $500 supports one episode, although donations of any size are welcome. Lastly, if you played varsity sports at Cal and you haven't connected with us on LinkedIn, join us. Send a connection request. Our LinkedIn network is comprised of thousands of Cal varsity athletes and alumni who are among the most productive citizens of the world, just like Stu. I'll see you in a few weeks on our next amazing episode. Thank you for listening and go Bears! Bears.